The Parents Show on Mix 92.6. Sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Parents Show. We are so excited to, ta- to introduce and speak to our, our, our guest this evening. We're going to be speaking to Professor Barbara Ann Oakley, or Barb Oakley, um, who is an American professor of engineering at Oakland University and McMaster University. And her online courses on learning are some of the most popular MOOC classes in the world. She's involved in multiple areas of research, ranging from STEM education to learning practices. And Barbara has written just a few books that are extremely relevant to us parents and guardians on learning. Her books include Learning Like a Pro, Learning How to Learn, Mind Shift and A Mind for Numbers. So Barb, thanks a million for joining us on The Parents Show this evening. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Lydia. It's it's all our pleasure. And I, I know from speaking to our listeners that this is a topic they're incredibly interested in. So we're going to we're going to pick your brains nonstop this evening, if that's okay. Oh, that's uh, quite all right. I'm just obviously this is uh, the passion of my life. And so um, sharing with parents is right there with what I think is really important in life. Fantastic. And and I mean, really, the biography I read about you, I don't think it does justice to the amazing journey uh, you've had so far in in your own learning and your and, and how you've got to where you are. Would you mind telling our listeners about your journey to where you are now in your life, please? Oh, sure. Let's see if I can make a uh, short story long or a long story short, one or the other. (laughs) But I grew up uh, hating math and science uh, with a passion. So I flunked my way through elementary, middle and high school math and science, which is really ironic since I am speaking with you here today as a distinguished professor of engineering. So uh, I think that the thing that happened to me, you know, because one time one of my students, my engineering students, found out about my sordid past as a math flunky. <laughs> and he said, how did you change your brain? And the reality is that um, we're often told to follow our passions, but we're not often told to broaden our passions. So in my, as I began my career, uh, when I was graduating from high school at age 18, I joined the army because I thought, well, the only thing I can maybe do that I really have a passion for is learning a second language, which I know for many people is like, been there, done that, you know, I do it, you know, from birth. But uh, for me, it just seemed fascinating to have that that different perspective that another language and culture could give you. So I enlisted in the army right out of high school and went to the Defense Language Institute, which is one of the world's leading uh, language study institutions. And there I learned Russian and I, I went and I worked as a, a private, eventually got made my way up and ended up my career as a a regular army captain. And I was 26 years old. 
And I wanted to get out of the military, but I found out that, you know, my sole professional expertise was the ability to learn a foreign, foreign language. You know, that was all I'd done was Slavic yeah. languages and literature. So um, I, I decided, you know, aren't I supposed to be open to new adventures and new perspectives? Why don't I see if I can try a new perspective of the mind and, and learn in math and science. And I found that when I use some of these approaches from language learning to learn in math and science, it made a tremendous difference. And over the years, I've done many different things. I worked as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers, met my husband at the South Pole Station in Antarctica. I always say I had to go to the end of the earth to meet that man. <laughs> but uh, I, I really, uh, I think what is important for all of us to recognize is that there are simple tools and tricks to learning that are simply not taught by, by schools because oftentimes these simple tricks uh, and tips were not taught to educators because we didn't have the neuroscientific background to understand what they were and why they were. And so, uh, so that's what I love to share is, is information about how to learn effectively based on this fantastic research from neuroscience and cognitive psychology that can really help students and help parents to help their children uh, to learn more effectively. Well, I think our parents are certainly sitting up and listening to you now, Barb, not least because your your story is fantastic. I love the Antarctic bit. And uh, I, I'm going to be completely honest with you now. Um, sometimes we, we gear shows around a request from a listener or a conversation with friends. But this show is really for me. So I wanted to speak to you about how to learn for very selfish reasons. My children are 11 and 13 and just starting to do exams in, in a slightly more serious way. And the truth is, I actually don't know how to tell them or guide them how to learn because I'm actually not sure I ever learned properly myself how to learn. So can you tell us how how do we start thinking about learning to learn and does it all is it all does it all come naturally to us well i remember when i was starting i was beginning my engineering studies and i remember reading a book and it was on physics it was kind of this in-depth topic and i thought you know i am not going to turn this page until I understand it. And I stared and stared at that page for, you know, well over an hour. And finally, I, I just, you know, I was like, I, I cannot make sense of it. And I accidentally flipped the page. And lo and behold, there right on the next page, it all fell together. And I thought, gosh, you know, why doesn't anyone ever tell us about how to learn more effectively? Because I had just been sitting there stupidly wasting an hour because I didn't know to do what I now know is called a picture walk through a book where like if you have a chapter assigned to you, you take, you just 
quickly go through, you know, whether it's online or in a book, you quickly go through and just look at the bolded words, look at the chapter sections, uh, look at the pictures, read the captions, um, and just get a little bit of a sense of where that, that particular material is going. And that will help you to have a kind of a, a framework that you can hang your ideas on as they are developing. So no, learning does not necessarily come naturally at all. We can do the silliest things um, because when you're just looking at something, for example, you think you've got it in mind because it's right there in front of you. You're looking at a page with a picture and you're sure you've got it. And you really, you kind of do because it's in your temporary working memory. But when you look away from that page and you get away from it for even just a couple minutes, it's not in your long-term memory. And we don't know that. So we have these illusions of competence. We're looking at something. We think we know it. Only later on when we take a test do we realize, no, we didn't know this at all. And so the little little tricks, for example, I remember speaking with one of the, the most highly cited scientists in the world. And he said, actually... Barb, I had a learning disability. I have dyslexia. And it was really, really hard for me because I also had attention deficit, you know, difficulties. It was hard for me to learn anything. And I stumbled across this technique where I would just get a textbook and I would randomly pull a page open and try to work a problem that was on that page without knowing where in the book that problem was from. And so I would just try and randomly open it and not be aware of, of which chapter, which section, and I would work lots of problems that way. Well, what he was doing was something called interleaving. That is, doing somewhat similar kinds of problems, or if it was language study, somewhat similar types of verb conjugations for that matter or whatever but but like practicing which technique do you use at a particular time so I'll, I'll be more specific if you're learning a language we learn present tense we learn it really well then we learn past tense we learn that really well and future tense we practice with that but we don't practice mixing up those tenses and that's what's called interleaving. Mixing up tenses is what comes more naturally in conversation. If you're learning in math and science and you learn, uh, let's say, uh, how to handle or how you learn how to use the um, binomial distribution, then the negative binomial distribution, then the geometric distribution. You can do each one individually if you're told that that's what you're supposed to be using. Like for this problem, use a binomial. But you don't get used to how do you yourself select which technique to use? Should it be binomial or should it be geometric? 
interleaving means mixing things up while you're practicing. So you also learn which tool to choose as well as how to use that particular tool. So there's just so much that that doesn't come naturally that actually researchers have found there are a few people who stumble across some of these techniques and it allows them to excel. But we can actually all learn what these techniques are. They're pretty straightforward. So that's that's what I try to teach in my courses. For example, I have a course geared for parents and for young people called Learning How to Learn for Youth. And that is on the Coursera platform um, with Arizona State University. And the main idea has got 16 five-minute videos. It's free. Um, and what you can do is just sit with your child and watch, gradually watch one or two of these videos a day. And wow, you'll just get these really easy to understand techniques that can make a tremendous difference in your life. Barb, I wish you could see what I'm doing now. I'm just typing furiously and making notes about exactly what you've said. So the, the I mean, I had never heard of interleaving as, as a technique or as a trick. So, I mean, that it, it, it makes, I can, I, I can understand exactly what you're talking about and I can understand how it teaches you to master. Like it's, it's really, really helpful. So Arizona State University, learning how to learn for youth. That's the course I think our parents and young people should be getting on. Oh, I think they will love it. And, and part interleaving is part of a master concept called retrieval practice. And that is simply uh, the idea of seeing if something is in your own mind, retrieving it. The easiest way to think of retrieval practice is flashcards. You know, you look at a flashcard, it says pato, which is Spanish for duck. So you see pato and you flip it over, you know, you, you're like, uh, was that a duck? And then you flip it over and you check. Yeah, you were right. So using flashcards is the simplest example of retrieval practice. Hundreds and hundreds of studies have shown, however, that retrieval practice is far more powerful than we ever thought it was. We used to think, oh yeah, it's simple rote learning of vocabulary words in a foreign language or anatomical terms or something. And it's like, nope, guess what? Retrieval practices is the best way for your child to learn anything. Because what it does is it helps them get past these illusions of competence in their learning they can, let's say they read a chapter in a book. Well, when they're riding the bus to school or they're taking a shower that day or whatever, can they retrieve what the key ideas of that chapter were? Now, if they've just read the chapter, they may think, oh, of course I can retrieve it. But they'll be surprised that it may not be as easy as they think retrieving, like getting those those flocks of thoughts together in your mind 
Like even when you're grappling with understanding a new concept, if you're thinking about it, you're actually retrieving it and you're connecting it with other things you know. So retrieving it from your own mind is what strengthens the neural links in long-term memory that are at the heart of learning anything. Unfortunately, we've been told by uh, educators and cognitive psychologists for decades um, that, oh, you don't need to remember anything. You can always look it up. This actually, this idea can cripple students' abilities to learn because as it turns out, what we now know from neuroscience is if you don't have those fundamental neural connections that are at the heart of learning, those connections in long-term memory, you simply don't know the topic. You're not an expert. You're not a, you really don't know it at all. I mean, could I speak Spanish if I just use Google Translate to always look it up? Of course not. But it's actually like that for any subject area. I have to say, I'm so relieved that you've said that, Bart, because I think there's such a disconnect um, nowadays between how parents learned and how their children are learning. I mean, they're using apps. They're not coming home with books. They've got sheets, you know, separate sheets of paper. They've got notebooks, but they don't seem to use those for revision and, and different things like that. So I think parents are at a at quite of a loss how to support their children in their learning and and quite often I don't know if other parents are experiencing this but the idea as you said of rote learning being outdated if, if that's outdated then I, I didn't know where to start so that is incredibly valuable to know that retrieval practice works it's the best way to do it and and it makes complete sense because I mean the the if you don't that, I love the idea of the illusion of competence, because obviously if that gets burst, if the illusion is burst in the middle of an exam, then you've you've failed it. So you really need to find out where your competence is before you get into the exam. And that's what retrieval's for, right? Exactly right. What it is, is it's, it's low stakes um, testing of yourself before you ever actually have tests. So if you try to retrieve something and it's not there, you haven't lost anything. In fact, you've gained something. You found out you didn't really know it. And so retrieval practice is really, it's this really mild, low stakes way of studying on your own. And what they found is that if students suffer from test anxiety, the best tool to reduce test anxiety is to use retrieval practice during your studies, initial studies. It'll make a tremendous difference. Thank you. That's re really, really valuable. So welcome back to The Parents Show. And tonight we're speaking to Professor Barbara Ann Oakley about how to support our children in learning how to learn. Barb, thanks so much for joining us on The Parents Show this evening. Oh, it's such a pleasure being here, Lydia. Oh, it's, it's, it's so reassuring what you've said and you, you make it so accessible to me as a parent and I'm sure to other parents out there about how to help our, our children. I was particularly so relieved that retrieval practice, good old flashcards, 
learning things by rote still has a place in in learning today and and I think that'll reassure a lot of parents in guiding their children to get the flashcards out and to use them more regularly. Yes, absolutely. And I I think one important thing for me is that so I I've been through the gamut. I I am out in the technological world. I work as a professional, I'm a distinguished professor of engineering. I know the importance of learning some math um, in, in making, you know, whatever you do in your career, if you can also speak, so to speak, a little bit of mathematics, all careers doors are open for you. If you don't learn the math, then only a certain specific, often less high-paying um, group of, you know, careers are open for you. So I know for my own daughters, um, what I did was uh, I, women actually are verbally advanced. So, I mean, little girls, they could be verbally advanced over little boys of the same age. Now, their analytical skills, little girls and little boys, are the same. They, I mean, they've, they've got the same, on average, abilities in math and science. But little girls can be a little ahead verbally. And what this can mean is that little boys can look inside themselves and say, well, you know, I'm better at analytical sorts of things. So they, if we tell our kids, follow your passion, they can end up doing something more analytically inclined, which pays better, of course. And even though little that little boy, on average, had the same capability in math and science as a little girl, whereas the little girl, because she can on average, be just a little bit better at verbal sorts of things. Even though her math skills are just as good as the little boys, that little girl can say, well, if I'm supposed to follow my passion, passions develop about what I'm really good at. So I should do something more verbal. So I knew with our two daughters, they're very verbally adept and that they could end up going off into something verbal and not putting any emphasis in their studies on mathematically-based sorts of things. So I gave them a little extra practice each day in math. I used a program called Kuman, K-U-M-O-N, which is a wonderful retrieval practice and, most importantly, interleaving approach to learning math so that you really get those ideas down into what's called the basal ganglia procedural system. So like, you know, your multiplication tables by heart, and then you don't actually have to think very carefully because fractions can come more naturally because you know your multiplication tables. Because fractions come more naturally, then algebra comes more naturally. When algebra comes more naturally, calculus comes more naturally. So these very fundamental ideas, like knowing your multiplication tables quickly and by heart, are actually critical. They're just as critical as being very fluent in, uh, in learning a foreign language. You want to be able to do some things without even having to think about them. So, so I um, gave them 10 years 
of 20 minutes, you know, most days of extra practice in Kumon mathematics. There's another program called Smartic, S-M-A-R-T-I-C-K, um, that's also good with math. Dragonbox is, I, I believe, another um, app that's quite good. Um, but these kinds of apps that help children to become procedurally fluent with math are invaluable. And, and I do have to say that um, you, the teachers want to control what students see, and they often don't like extra coaching on the side. And you have to ignore that if that pushback comes from the educational community. Because if you want what's best for your child, you need to give them the practice that often is not forthcoming from the educational system. And I have to say, I don't know if other parents experience this, but there isn't anything like the level of homework given to children that that there was when when I was a child um, or when I when I was at school. I'm not sure if that's just an Irish thing, but um, it seems like there's even less opportunity for that kind of retrieval practice and interleaving um, outside school as well. So I think it makes a huge amount of sense. And I've got those those three websites. So you said Smart Tick, Dragon Box. I think Kumon is, is pretty widespread here in the UK. I think most people know it. And it, it's great to know that that simple repetition is, is so valuable, Barb. And it kind of blows my mind that you've said, you know, so this this maths gene idea or the idea that you're genetically predisposed to maths, are you, you're saying it can just be overcome by hard work, bit of grit and application. Is that right? Well, I, I want to bring in just sort of common sense results from scientific research. Some people are gifted at math. Yeah. Well, and some people are are gifted, for example, at having those incredible reflexes that allow them to become extraordinary race car drivers. But does that mean that none of us bother to learn how to drive because somebody can drive better than us? I mean, <laughs> there's lots of reasons to know how to drive, you know, uh, even if you're not the world's best. So, you know, bless them. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that some people are naturally, they can pick up incredibly quickly on mathematical concepts or, or drawing or music or, but, but you know what, that that's great. But yeah, I'm living example that just picking it up, not being the best, but able to really do enough to you know, to um, open career doors for me has made an extraordinary difference in my life. So you don't need to be the best. You just need to know the fundamental basics and know them really well. And then that can open the career doors of your real choice instead of those fewer career doors that are constrained to you because you've inadvertently had things closed off because of the way that you've been taught, which sometimes can cripple our ability and desire to excel in certain subjects. And would you say, Barb, that that kind of 
you said some people are just naturally uh, gifted at math. Maths, do you think the same thing applies for art, for the English language? Do you think it extends beyond maths as well? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, for example, um, our daughters are very gifted verbally. And in fact, many little girls are just on average better verbally. But that doesn't mean that we should be telling them just do verbal stuff just because they're maybe better verbally, but they're still, you know, on average, exactly the same um, as little boys in their ability to learn math. You know, that's, um, we want to really build in this idea, I think, that everybody needs to have some fundamental um you know, uh, education involving math, involving literacy, involving um, music, art, and things like this. We we now know that the way educators have been teaching students how to read for decades with whole language approaches have actually crippled many students' abilities to learn to read. The phonics approach is really you know, just that rote practice to start with helps get them over the hump so they can start reading and enjoying it. But since that was not taught for, you know, that was not the approach used by educators, there are school systems in California where, what, like 30% of students graduate knowing how to read at a uh, above a third grade level something uh, statistics that are are actually kind of mind-boggling and they they finally acknowledge that yes this whole language approach where you just read to them and figure you know think that they will naturally pick it up is not appropriate for learning how to read because learning how to read is very different than simply learning your native language. And we have the, you know, the innate capacity to easily pick up a language when we're young and we hear it around us, but we do not have the native capacity to learn to read um, easily. We have to use phonics. And it's, we're in the math stage, we're right where whole language was you know, several decades ago, mass stage, they, they're they're just beginning to come around to, yeah, you know, it's important to use a little rote work to understand them, you know, to remember the multiplication tables, just as you use a little rote work to remember how these letters sound. And then you can move forward. So anyway, that's my my little bit of a soapbox. Sorry about that. Oh no, yeah. I, I honestly, it's it's inspirational, and and particularly like it just makes so much sense. Follow our passions. We we we're told to follow our passions, but we're not told to broaden our passions. So that's exactly what you're saying. And everybody, everybody needs everybody needs a solid foundation in math. So, yeah, no, I I think it's really valuable information. Um, for us parents and helps us steer our children in the right direction. Um, yes. Now, this, what I wanted to ask you is, the next question is schools. So, I mean, 
do do our schools, do our teachers generally learn themselves about how to learn? Are they taught um, tips and tricks like retrieval practice, interleaving? Or because I, I know they're overwhelmed, so much pressure is put on teachers to to achieve so much in a very short space of time. But if they're not learning those kind of techniques, then they're certainly not sharing those techniques with our children. Do you know what the state of play is? Well, teachers have my deepest admiration. They are on the front lines of trying to move society forward. And and I just, I have to take a step back and say that in the U.S., for example, during the COVID um, catastrophe, many states mandated that no new learning would take place. But what we now know from neuroscience is that new neurons are born every day in the hippocampus. And those new neurons help you feel better, but those new neurons will survive, thrive, and grow if you are learning something new. So new learning helps new neurons survive, thrive, and grow, and that in turn helps you feel better. It's a a very, neurogenesis is a very hot topic now in depression research. But what they found was when they shut down new learning, that uh, depression rates soared. So it's it's not just that there were all these you know catastrophic um, events happening with people you, you know with COVID spreading. It's that new new learning was shut down, and that really led helped lead to the depression rates that we're seeing now. So what teachers do is phenomenally important. The difficulty for teachers is when new insights come about how, like this insight that new learning helps students feel better, that, that's coming from neuroscience. But a lot of teachers, they're already out, they're working, they've been trained. How can they learn about these new ideas? Well, I I have to say there is a great way to learn, and that is to go and look at our Uncommon Sense Teaching specialization on Coursera, which covers a lot of these groundbreaking neuroscientific insights in really like super funny with great animations. You can find, you know, you can cut through all of that um those years of well we get this neuroscientific research and then it will gradually seep into schools of education and then it will gradually go out to uh teachers no we can like today we can start um within a month bring teachers up to date with this magnificent and super helpful information and it's they are not taught this because it's it's really only in the past decade that a lot of this information has become available and you know so it's it's just it's not their fault but but what the great news is is that there's easy ways to onboard with these new ideas that can be extraordinarily helpful not only for teachers but like 
the Uncommon Sense Teaching Specialization is perfect for parents as well because it helps parents to begin to understand what's happening in their children's brains when they're trying to help them, when, when they not only are trying to help their children learn, but they themselves are trying to learn things like what is going on in my children's online platforms that I can start learning about that platform myself so I can understand what they're doing so I can better help my child. So it's, adults learning as well as children learning. And there's magnificent materials that are brand new that are available online that can help much more quickly onboard us into this fascinating new world of how to learn effectively um, in ways that, you know, can save people time and give them more time for fun. Makes so much sense. So, Barb, you said it was the Uncommon Sense Teaching Specialization and parents can pop in there too and, and learn from the, the research that's been done. Absolutely. So, one thing, you know, it's so funny because I, I did this specialization with several different people. And so, for example, I work with one of the world's greatest neuroscientists, Terry Sanowski, who's one of only 12 human beings who's simultaneously a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, of Engineering, and of Medicine. But then I also teach with Beth Rogowski, who is a, she's a former K-12 teacher, now a, uh, a professor of education. And like trying to get us all on the same page. It's amazing. You know, teachers will often complain that, you know, those neuroscientists and those cognitive psychologists, like about all these buzzwords and terms they use. And it's no fair for us teachers because, you know, we, they need to translate it into our way of thinking. But what teachers don't realize is they use all these buzzwords and terms uh, that need to be translated so that parents can understand what they're talking about. And so that's what we try to do in this specialization of three courses, which is, you know, translate terms that are commonly used by teachers, K-12 teachers, for example, that, you know, that parents just you know, what is a formative as opposed to a summative assessment? Teachers will bandy about these terms like everybody knows what they are, but we don't know what they are. And are there really good scientific, is there good scientific evidence for these kinds of approaches? These are the kinds of things we explore in the Uncommon Sense teaching courses. But more deeply than that is just that these, you know, how how do kids learn? That's really the bottom line. And that's what we show. And how can you practically, what kind of practical approaches can you implement to help your child? And it must be frustrating for teachers not to have the full knowledge of of how to learn efficiently, because obviously it makes their jobs easier if they can communicate well how, how children can learn more effectively, because increasingly in the UK and I'm, I'm sure it's absolutely the same in the US is they're they're expected to deliver the highest results possible and the pressure on schools is pretty immense. 
Absolutely. It, it Being a teacher is a tough job, but at the same time, the impact you can make in helping children's lives, I mean, that's, it's just, it, it's invaluable. Um, and, and it can be so gratifying. So if you can find ways to, um, you know, get past the bureaucracy and implement, you know, some of these new fresh ideas that can really help make your job easier and make your students happier, um, even if it's not always that you're making them all happy all the time. Um, that's one of the things that actually I should go on a little side note about that is, um, so I mentioned that I use Kuman, which is like 20 minutes extra practice a day with math most days. You know, yeah. I, part of it is like, I, I have the utmost respect for tiger moms who want their children to really learn all sorts of things and learn them well. But I'm, I'm just like not a tiger mom, um, except about one thing, because that is, if you make sure that your kid is, you know, at least passable in math, that that is going to make a big difference in what career doors are open for them. So I decided to be a tiger mom with one paw. <laughs> the one paw is, uh, is I made my daughter's do one thing. And that was that little extra practice with math. Now I exposed him to music lessons and to dance and to, um, you know, basketball practice. They'd never forgive me for that. You know, I <laughs> exposed them to all sorts of things, but you know, they didn't want to pursue them. So that was just fine with me. There was only one thing that I was adamant about, and that was that they would get this extra math practice. So it was that was my one paw. And for 10 years, so my older daughter is just, you know, I mean, uh, very verbally gifted, like totally not a math kid. Um, I yeah. mean, it was like, this is one bunny ear and he's two, you know, and um, it, you, it was math concepts didn't come easy for her, but she got that extra practice all the way along. And so um, she could have easily ended up one of those little girls who grew up to say, you know, I just don't do the math thing. You know, I, I, I really don't do that. Instead, she just finished not long ago her medical residency at Stanford. So she was able to fulfill her dream because she had that math. Now, our younger daughter, totally the artist. So, yeah. uh, you know, so 10 years of, you know, that 20 extra minutes a day was like pushing a rope a lot of times because she was very hard-headed and she didn't want to do it. But that was just my one thing. And so... That's what we did. So we struggled for 10 years and she went out and she became an artist and she worked in marketing and she began to realize that maybe she needed a different career. So she just finished her master's degree in statistics. No she way. loves it. And she wouldn't have been able to do that without that, you know, I'm convinced without a, a really good foundation in math that she was able to leapfrog from you know, from art into, uh, you know, taking, you know, a master's and doing super well in statistics. And, and so 
what that really tells us, I think, as parents is, you know, your kids may not always love you while they're growing up and you're insisting on certain things, but they will really be happy in the end that you did have some good vision and you were able to persevere. You know what my kids say to me now? They go, why couldn't it have been two things. Why didn't you all t- also teach us, uh, you know, make us do a musical instrument? Uh, you know, you can't win yeah. from losing. But, <laughs> you know, when your kids protest about this stuff and you're like, oh, what do I do? They're not happy about it. It's like, well, you know, that's the way it is. You just, you persevere through, you, you can't love everything every minute. I mean, riding a bike is awesome, but you have to go through this period of riding a bike where you fall off and you get hurt, and it, you know, it's not pleasant. Well, that that period for riding a bike is relatively short, but you got to go through it. That period for math is longer, but if you go through it, you'll be able to fly in in the long run. It makes complete sense, Barb. And I'm I'm you've you've totally convinced me. My kids are definitely going I'm gonna make them do 20, 20 minutes of maths a day from now on in because it's it's just giving them more opportunities. And I'm so glad to hear that your daughters are actually saying that as opposed to you tortured us with maths for ten years, you know. So yeah. so you've you've really emboldened me as a parent and I'm sure other parents who are listening to hold fast dig down and go, no, I know better. 20 minutes of maths a day, it'll stand to you, you know, so thank exactly you. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah. And the, the stats are on your side, Barb. I mean, if we look at China versus, I don't know, Europe or the States when it comes to maths ability, can you talk to us just briefly about that, how how the, the, the stats are in their favor? Oh, absolutely. Um, so just a little side note, wrapping up that those last thoughts is, so if children don't like doing that extra math, the, the trick is you're keeping it short. So like 20 minutes, you know, at most a half an hour extra math study a day, it's just not that big a deal. It's, you know, uh, so keeping it short and use every reward you possibly can, you know, like, well, when you get to done with this, you get to play your, you know, favorite video game for a while or whatever is, you know, a reward, but just use every parental trick that you know to mo- help motivate and get them through that. But the other thing is that practice of math, you know, that 20 extra minutes, what I found was a well-designed program for example, with Kuman, has interleaving built in. So you're not just like getting extra practice sort of randomly with math. You're getting a very cleverly designed program that also has built in, you know, it's retrieval practice with interleaving. And that that can make a difference. But when you go to, uh, I, I think, to my mind, the very best of all possible educational worlds is a melding of East and West. So let's let's just talk about, um, you know, math, for example. China is way, way ahead in how they're teaching. Um, now, you may uh, quibble and say, for example, that one of the most common uh, tests used to compare is the PISA, 
And PISA is only for the Shanghai region in China. It's not all of China. And that's true. But even if you look at other, what I think are sometimes more valid uh, ways of comparing countries, as for example, the TIMS um, uh, uh, sets of examinations, um, Asians come out way ahead with their math training. And a big part of that is because of their traditions, they simply don't shy away from acknowledging and, and building on the importance of retrieval practice with not only good interleaving, but also really good explanations. So uh, to my mind, I think, you know, one of the challenges with Asian approaches to teaching is there, we now know that the brain has two fundamentally different modes of thinking. So one is focusing, that is using task positive networks, as psychologists call it. And the other is this default mode network. Sometimes I call it diffuse mode. It's more relaxed uh, way of thinking and mind wandering. There is evidence that the more you focus, if you focus all the time, you actually suppress that default mode network the diffuse mode. And that is a broad sweeping network that's also affiliated with creativity. So I, I think Western approaches can, uh, can be great in that they use both, you know, but not enough focused practice. Um, it, but they also, they do build in this use of, you know, more of a, we take resting breaks with our teaching. Um, or with what the kids are doing. And that can really help with creativity. Too much focus all the time. Uh, and for example, focused mode meditation, um, even open monitoring uh, sorts of meditation, uh, like mindfulness, can, can suppress that default mode activity and suppress the creativity. So it, it's important, I think, for good educators. And, you know, there's ways to do, you don't have to like teach your class in like every, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Okay, now it's time for a five minute break or something, because that's not really how we teach. But there's yeah. ways to cleverly introduce uh, little bits of mental breaks. And good teachers, kind of automatically do this they'll they'll teach for 10 or 15 minutes and then say okay now kids i want you to turn in small groups and discuss this thing even if it's a mathematical thing or work together to solve this problem or something this this allows that default mode to pop up give the students a little bit of a rest and also allows the hippocampus to offload uh, or to um, reinforce the new learning that's taken place. So, um, yes, uh, China and uh, Asia are often way ahead of us, but we can, you know, switch our approaches so that we can catch up and still bring that remarkable creativity of Western approaches that can together enhance, I mean, it's hard for students to be creative if they don't like really know the subject matter. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it doesn't just like pop up magically. 